back after our week hiatus for the uh, LWML seminar. Um, it's been an interesting week, I tell you what. Uh, yesterday morning, as you know, our Mission Festival is coming up October 17th, uh, just a couple of weeks. I, yesterday morning, I got a phone call from uh, the organization Food for the Poor that uh, our speaker had to have spinal surgery. So uh, they had to uh, cancel, and all of their other speakers, of course, are booked up that day by now. So it was uh, interesting, but it, it worked out pretty well, actually, because I got a speaker from uh, a recognized service organization of the LCMS. It's called Messiah for Muslims, basically outreach to Muslims. And I thought we had one speaker, but it turns out we have a different speaker, which is actually a good thing because he's a guy I've heard of before. Um, the guy is based out of Chicago. He's an LCMS pastor now, but he was born out in uh, Beirut. He actually had some of his family members killed by Christian militia out there where the religious tensions are high, was joined the Muslim Brotherhood, if you know what that is, and actually fought to kill Christians for quite some time before going to college and uh, hearing the Sermon on the Mount and having that radically change his life and then ran into a guy who speaks for, or uh, who works with the Lutheran Hour and now is a, a Lutheran pastor. So that should be a... An interesting guy to have. A uh, mission festival. Right. I missed that part. Right, right, yeah. My mind was somewhere. My mind was. His journey sounds like St. Paul. I know, it should be really interesting. Well, so I'm looking forward to it. it I'm, boy, I was glad because I did not expect we'd find another speaker in two weeks' notice for sure. So, anyway, things happen for a reason, I suppose, so. Anyway, we're uh, working along on our uh, Bible study about um, what it means to be a good person and how that fits in with uh, Christi our uh, Christian beliefs and specifically our Lutheran beliefs and what we make of that idea that we ought to be good people. If you can even remember two weeks ago, seems like ages ago. Honestly, it seems like it was a year ago. We had finished, we've been working through this uh, topic by working through um, how Christ's atoning work for us actually leads us to want to be good people. And not just want to be good people, but to uh, actually be good in a very real sense. And I believe, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, looking at our worksheet, we got up, we were just starting on verse, or part number 4B. Does that look correct to you? That's what I got. I always like it when my memory works because I didn't mark it down actually and I, I'm going to be uh, have dementia I'm pretty sure by the time I'm 45 and that's not good for anybody. That's not good. But my memory is awful. Yellow, yellow sticky notes are good. Oh, I got to remember to write them out is the problem. Remember where you put them? Oh, you want to know how bad it is. There was a day up in Minnesota. I needed to take something home that night, so I literally, it was a briefcase with some stuff in it. I set it in front of my door so that I would have to walk past it to leave the office. And I actually walked over it <laughs> and left it in the office. So, as you probably already figured out over the last three years, I have a tendency to forget a lot of things. And it's just to say, it, it hasn't gotten worse, or it hasn't gotten any better over time, and it's not a new trait. So. You're human, just like the rest of us. Yeah. With a worse memory than most of you, probably. The more you have to do, the more you have to forget. Oh, my goodness. But anyway, um, so we talked about how uh, 
kind of what Bill had started off us off with in the last session about how the reason we do good is because when Christ atones for our sins and justifies us, this actually, he also actually reshapes our hearts so that as we trust in his work for us, we also start to love him for all that he is and does. Um, and that leads us to want to obey him and to do his will. So that, uh, as uh, Ephesians 2, we looked at, says, after it talks about how we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and even that faith is a gift of God, um, we are therefore God's handiwork. We're God's creations, not our own self-creations. But that also means that as God's handiwork, we are geared towards the doing the good works that he intends for us to do. So being justified by grace alone doesn't put us against doing good works or make good works beside the point. It rather orients us and empowers us to do good works. The very fact that we are Christians means we will want to do good works. Uh, if we're made good trees through faith, so to speak, we'll bear good fruit. Uh, any questions about that before we uh, get into some specifics about what we mean when we say um, God makes us loving so that we produce good and loving things. All right, then let's actually look a little more specifically about what this goodness and this love actually looks like on the ground. Because like we saw last time, um, we can have some very different definitions about what a good person actually looks like and what makes a person good, right? That kind of was our start off to this whole discussion. Um, so what does the Bible say about what a Christian's love looks like? Um, somebody want to turn us to Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. That's a really good summary of this. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm to its neighbor, does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. All right. Now, that's a, there are lots of other places we could have gone to Scripture to make the point. But Paul summarizes a lot of what Scripture says really well. He first of all says, the debt you now have because Christ redeemed you is basically to love everybody, right? And you should just want to fulfill that debt to pay it off, so to speak. You mean he's speaking metaphorically. But just start showing love to everybody. And then you might ask, okay, well, what does it mean to love everybody? What should I be acting like if I want to show love? And what does Paul say love will look like? Does he say, when you have good feelings and strong uh, affinity for people, that's fulfilling love. When you try to do your best, whatever that means, that's doing love. Is that what Paul says? Trying to keep the commandments. Yeah, love is the fulfillment of the law. And then he actually starts listing off the commandments, as you probably are aware, are the Ten Commandments. Or at least he pulls several of those out, and he's not saying only those. He says whatever other commandments from God there are. Point being, what love and good, what good deeds and uh, loving actions look like on the ground are what God actually has spelled out in the Ten Commandments. If you want to be a loving person, 
then if you have a wife, devote yourself to your wife. Say no to other women and be faithful to her. If you want to be a loving person and you happen to have children, by all means, guide those children into the fear and knowledge of the Lord, discipline them well, and provide for them. If you want to be a good and loving person and you happen to have a parent, honor, obey, respect your parents. Those things are how you show love for other people. Because this gets at the uh, key point. Well, let's actually just dive into number one. This will bring us to this point I want to bring up. Why the law? Why would the law be the standard of what it means to love somebody? After all, you, might, you encounter people who uh, say they need things, right? And what we, we sometimes call felt needs. Like, I really need you to be supportive of me right now. I really need you to be in my corner right now. Those kinds of things, right? And no doubt they earnestly believe that's what they really need. So why isn't that the standard for what is loving? What a person believes they need or that what a person believes would be helpful and good for them. Why that not that? So for instance, just to give, put some meat on the bones of that abstract idea, let's say that uh, a wife has fallen out of a strong affinity for her husband and says, I really need you to just give me my space and my independence right now. If you love me, let me go. I keep her in a stifling relationship where she feels no romantic attachment to her husband. Wouldn't it be more loving to give her what she really needs to thrive and let her go? Why not? It's what she needs, well, I mean, right? Uh, if someone loves alcohol and decides they got to have a drink, are you just going to hand them a bottle of it, or are you going to say, you're doing harm to yourself? Right, exactly. I really need a drink right now. And they probably believe that to the depths of their toes. There might even on certain addictions be a biological component where their body is going to react badly if they don't get that drink. But does that make that the loving thing to do? And then you get to a really good point. What is loving for another to another person is always to do what is actually good for the other person, right? And what is good for another person is not always what they believe or think or feel is good for them. I always like to bring up my kids at this point because, heck, you've all had kids. Kids want a lot of things, right? They feel they need these things. Um, are they usually, are they always or even all that often at younger ages correct about what's good for them? No. In fact, doing the loving thing of addressing their felt needs and letting their, what they believe they need to be the standard of what's good and loving would probably be destructive to them. Just like letting the alcoholic have all the beer he wants. He might think you're showing love, but you are doing exactly the opposite because you're allowing that person to do things that will destroy their life in a lot of ways. Same thing with the wife and her husband in those kinds of situations. It may seem like that's the more loving thing to the wife at the time, but first of all, who has the best handle on what is actually good for humans? Probably the one who made and designed human beings, right? <clears throat> so chances are high that when he says, this is how you show love, this is how you seek the good of people around you, he's actually correct, whatever other people may think about that. 
God's word, therefore, is the standard rather than our felt needs, rather than uh, what we think are why are good responses to particularly tricky situations. The defining standard of what counts as love is always God's word because A, he's the creator, so he designed us, so he knows what's good for us, and B, <laughs> he's the creator, he's the judge, and therefore, ultimately, whatever we want to say is good answers to what he calls good. This is a very key thing. What counts, what is, or whatever God says is good is what makes it good. God defines what is good. God doesn't answer to some standard of goodness outside of himself. He gets to call what counts as good and evil. Even if it seems, this is the, to take this even further, even if it seems overtly evil to us, the very fact that God calls it good makes it good. Which is why we can go back to the Old Testament and see things where God commanded some things that we look at and say, really, God? You wanted them to wipe out the entire city, kill the women, kill the children, kill the livestock. A little extreme, little evil almost, right? But, and here's a very tough pill to swallow, but which also does line up with the fact that God is the creator, therefore the designer of the whole universe, and also the judge of the whole universe. If God says the thing is, and a course of action is good, even if it strikes us as evil, it's still good by definition. Because the definition of good is whatever God calls me to do. Hard lesson to learn. <laughs> because it means God is the judge of good and evil and not us. Not our needs, not our feelings, not our thoughts, not our beliefs. But it also turns out again that God also actually does know what is truly beneficial to us and tends to uphold and enrich our lives. And his law actually does result in those things when we abide by it. Well, then that uh, leads us to another question. Um, what makes a good deed actually a good deed? If God's word and God's law is the, the measure of what makes a thing good or not, and what's loving or not, then what counts as a good or a loving deed? Usually when you do something and you're not expecting anything in return, Okay, um, so on the one hand, and this hits a really important point, obviously you have to do the right thing on the outside. I mean, um, if God tells you, uh, for instance, don't steal, then not stealing is a very good thing. But what you're getting at is even deeper than that. It's not just about doing on the outside the right thing of not stealing, but also doing it with the right motivation, right? Um, it's not that I'm not stealing because I don't want to get in trouble. I mean, okay, granted, it's good that you're not stealing. But if you're doing it just for yourself, it's not really a loving act, is it? Because it's all about me and not about taking care of the person I'm refusing to steal from. I don't want to get pinched. I don't want to get in trouble. Um, that's self-love, not love for another person. Uh, so what Sam is hitting on is absolutely true. Being good, doing a good deed, is doing what the law actually commands, not just on the surface, but from your heart. Doing the right thing for the right reason, with the right motivations. Roman, I, I listed here Romans 6, 20 uh, through 23, just as a kind of uh, addition, not so much as an explanation of this. 
But I'll just read it really quickly. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves from to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, the reason I put that in there is just to show that there's a profound difference between um, being a slave to sin and a slave to righteousness. Um, to be a slave to righteousness means you're driving towards holiness, that you are gripped by this. And so it's not just a matter, again, of doing on the surface the right things, but having a holy heart that is also doing things out of the right motivations. Which brings us back to the first commandment, which is what? What's the very first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Do you happen to remember what that one means, according to the Catechism? You should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. You should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Um, one of the things about that explanation is it's all about your attitude. It has very little to do with your external behavior. It says you need to fear God above all things. That is, have respect for his power, his authority, his ability to follow through on his threats. You need to love God above all things. Do things out of complete devotion and commitment to him. And third, trust him. Assume that he's, his word is trustworthy, that he's going to do what he says. Who is capable of doing good then? Nobody. Certainly before Christ, especially, nobody is capable of doing the right thing, even remotely. Because if you don't fear God, if you don't trust God, if you don't love God, it doesn't matter what else you're doing. Even if it looks good on the surface, it's bad. Because it's going from a reason that doesn't flow out of fear and love and trust in God. It would be like being a good husband on the surface and doing it all so that my wife won't badger me. <laughs> Or all um, so that my friends will think I'm a respectable person. I might be looking like a good wife, but if my wife knew what was going on in my heart, would she be pleased about that? <laughs> Probably not. She'd, in fact, be very offended, very incensed, because she would realize I'm actually treating her with absolute contempt, even though I'm buying her flowers every week, even though I'm giving her so many things that she wants, because I'm not doing it for her. I'm doing it for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Show yourself as being good. Right. Show myself as being good, get good perks out of it, all kinds of reasons that are not because I love her and consider she's worthwhile. Bad husband is what we call that. Even if on the surface it's a much more tolerable life than the bad husband on the surface who doesn't care even treat his wife nominally good. But what happens to the heart of the Christian? What does Romans even assert happens to the heart of the Christian in chapter 6, verse 22? Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to who? God. To God. Paul is speaking here as though Christians, now that they have been redeemed by Christ and now that they have faith, what is faith except trusting God? You actually trust God. And now you are enslaved to him in the proper sense of the word, of um, being absolutely at his service, subordinate to him. Um, and that leads you to holiness. 
and to eternal life. This fact that God has made you subordinate to him and that you absolutely trust in him and depend on him. Point being, Christians in a very limited sense, while we're, we're certainly not saying that we can perfectly keep any of the commandments, Christians are capable of actually starting to do the commandments because their hearts have been transformed. Some of what we do is at least partially motivated out of some kind of fear and love and trust of God. Still marred by sin, no doubt, but still acceptable to God for the sake of Christ. And so we operate very differently in our motives than every other kind of person in the entire world. Presumably, um, let's take an example. Uh, let's say that uh, Sue is a Christian, Gala is not. They come in, they do their secretarial work. They do on paper, same exact amount of work with the same exact amount of enthusiasm, the same amounts of uh, care and uh, diligence. But Sue is a Christian, Gala is not. Are they both doing good works? To, to the human being, they are. To the human being, from our perspective, it looks like they are. But are they both truly doing good works? No. Only one of them is. And that would be Sue who's doing it partially out of fear and love and trust of God, whereas Gala is doing it for every reason except those. A big paycheck. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe it's, and, and we'll come, it's, it, we're going to come to this too, because it's certainly possible, and there certainly are a lot of people who are just motivated by, I need the bigger paycheck. But we're going to, this will lead to a very good question. Can we even say non-believers ever do good in any sense of the word? We're going to come to that in just a minute. So, and that's a helpful question, statement to help start clarifying that. But the big point is, in the sight of God, only one of you two are ever doing good. And that's the one who actually has faith. Because that's the one who is actually capable of doing things out of fear and love and trust of God. Like the scriptures say, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why would it say that? Because... If you're not doing it out of faith, you are not doing it as an act of love, trust, fear in God. And therefore, just like my very self-centered or very wife-despising mode of acting like a good husband, I'm still a bad husband. Gala's works as a non-Christian are still an offense to God, far from being a good thing God is pleased with. That's a tough pill to swallow in our modern day because we like to assume, and it's a very popular idea. You may have even heard some form of this where it goes around, even among Christians, it's not about what you believe, it's about what you do. As long as you're a good person, God is happy with you. Like we've talked about in many contexts before in the last lesson, through many illustrations, just like this one with the husband, what kind of wife would be pleased with a husband like that? No wife would be. I mean, she might be happier than the wife who has the overtly abusive husband. But, point being, she will not be satisfied with her husband's attitude toward her. And she shouldn't be, because it's extremely disrespectful, dismissive, and unloving of her. And no one who knew that situation would count him as a good husband. Why do we treat it like it should be different with God? As though, oh, you're a good person, even though you ignore, despise, utterly have no concern for the single most important relationship in your life. But you're a good person. <laughs> really? Try to say that about the father who hates, doesn't care about, doesn't even acknowledge his kids. That is really nice to everybody else's kids. 
Oh yeah, you're a real good person there. <laughs> it's ludicrous, that position. Um, even on a hum inner human level, all the more so when we're talking about our relationship between people and God. So that kind of gives us our answer to number three here. Can there be actions that other people believe are good and loving, but are in fact neither good nor particularly loving all the time? Whenever we do things for the wrong reason, those acts are neither good nor loving. Now, they might do some beneficial thing in the world. They might even have a certain form of love attached to them, but it is a love that proceeds towards the wrong objects to the wrong degree and therefore denigrates and destroys some very important other relationships. Um, we'll come to that a little more in a second. But it's important to say that, yes, there are deeds that others can believe to be good. Like we were talking about last time, there is this aspect where on a purely interhuman relationship, almost everybody can do things that look pretty good and loving to each other and actually are beneficial, right? But when we get down to what really is good in the sight of God, um, those things that look good between us look very ugly to God because he sees the whole picture and what's really going on. And he sees especially that there is a fundamental breakdown between your, our relationship with him in those kinds of cases. So that leads us to number five, which is a really important question to ask. Can non-believers, non-Christians ever do anything good? And here's where we want to be careful. Um, because... So very often, like we've already been talking about, when we think of the word good or loving, we kind of just confuse these two kinds of relationships in our own mind. We, we think that if we're doing things that look good in our relationships to each other, we must therefore be doing things that look good in our relationship to God. And that's something we've already talked about. We need to avoid that confusion. Because just because it looks good and even does some good things in our inner human relationships... It has nothing to do with whether it's actually good in God's sight. Because unless what we're doing is motivated out of fear, love, and trust in God, it is actually offensive to God and uh, actually dismissive of God. And therefore, absolutely evil in terms of our relationship with him. So, <clears throat> we could go to a Roman... Somebody want to turn... <coughs> excuse me, just to make this point. Romans 3, 11 to 12... And somebody else want to turn to Hebrews 11 to sit and verse 6 just to uh, help illustrate the point scripturally. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Does that sound like uh, non-believers who are not seeking God ever do good things? Like impossible. It, yeah, it literally says, not even one does good. <laughs> what about Hebrews 11.6? And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who, are, who earnestly seek him. All right, and there again, that verse we just quoted. 
If you're not a non-believer, what do you not have? Faith. Right? Yeah. Faith. And if you don't have faith, what is now impossible? Well, doing good works, right. Because it's impossible, what does Hebrews say? To please who? God. Non-believers cannot please God. It is impossible, as Hebrews overtly, explicitly, directly says. So again, in the sense of doing good in the sight of God, no, is the simple answer Christians give to the question, do non-Christians do good things? Are they good people? And this is a very good, uh, a very strong denial of that common view, doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're a good person. Because what the scriptures say is, it is impossible to be a good person unless you believe. It matters entirely what you believe. In fact, that is the thing that matters. Because only if you believe properly will you do and be any kind of good person. First of all, because only then will you actually be justified by God through Christ. And that's the only thing that really makes you good in the first place. And then subsequently, will you even then even have a beginning of doing anything that actually fulfills the law? Make sense? But we also want to be careful about not taking that point too far um, and therefore saying, therefore, every, everybody who is an unbeliever only does obvious evils all the time. <laughs> that is to say, um, I suspect most of you know people who, at least you, you have severe doubts as to whether they truly believe in Christ. Maybe some of you know only one or two people like that, but I'm guessing some of you have some experience with people who have, at the very least, a strong reason for you to suspect they have no faith. And there are certainly people who do have no faith who are very blatant about it. Are they all murdering rapists? <laughs> Strangely not. <laughs> do they all just go around stealing everything all the time? <laughs> no, 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 they don't. Not all of them, some of them certainly, but then so do some Christians. <laughs> um, what about uh, coveting? Do they all sit there and seem to only be driven by personal ambition. Now this get oh, go ahead. I will say the simple truth is we don't know what's in their heart. So, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, <clears throat> what's motivating them or what, you know, I mean, we can, uh, we can say non-believers never do good, but we really don't know who a believer is. Who a believer isn't okay. for sure. On the one hand, we, we do have to be careful about making too strong a judgments about who's a believer. I think it's safe to say, though, if somebody is, say, a committed follower of Islam and an overt denier of Christ, it's a fair guess that they probably aren't acting out of faith and trust in Christ justifying them, right? Because they overtly say so. Are all Muslims overtly <coughs> evil people? Or let's take a professed atheist, get a little less political baggage going on there. Um, just a, just a died in the wool, never takes, misses a chance to accuse Christians of being stupid for believing what they believe, radically, rabidly says, I don't believe in any God, let alone some stupid Jesus who died for my sins, as if I'm a sinner. Are all atheists horribly evil people? in the obvious of breaking every commandment, stealing, raping, committing adultery, beating their kids, so on and so forth. 
I think we all can shake our heads for a pretty, pretty readily for a pretty obvious reason. There are some of them who seem to be really decent people. And again, we don't know what motivates them, but would it be fair to say that if Sue were the Christian, Gala were the non-Christian, Gala is only going, to do the, going into the office because she wants to get a big paycheck. That's the only possible reason. Strict, selfish, and concern. She might need the paycheck, maybe not for herself, but if she's got family that is, you know, in need, she needs to have a job to... And then she'll get a paycheck and can take care of her family. It's quite possible she might actually be motivated out of concern and care for her family members. Like, she actually values her family and even is willing to sacrifice herself, her time, her life, in order to enrich the life of her children. That doesn't sound like I'm doing it all to get ahead myself, does it? But didn't we just say... <laughs> that only Christians are capable of real love and trust. So what's, what's the, how do we reconcile the fact that we encounter a lot of non-Christians who seem to actually be motivated by something other? And again, you don't really know what's in a person's heart, but by all accounts, it seems like they're motivated by something more than simple selfishness. They might even deeply care about their spouse, about their children, about... People in this church community, let's say, she's a secretary here, even if she doesn't believe any of the malarkey she thinks it is, she still really likes the people here, really wants to support what they support because she likes the community and all of that, not because she gets a lot out of it, because she genuinely just cares about the people here. Is that possible for a non-Christian? The answer is yes, actually. In fact, uh, let's go to Romans a couple of verses to help spill out how the, the scriptures themselves talk about how non-Christians are able to not just do things that on the surface look like they're like on, I'm, I'm doing my job in the office, but really I'm just doing it out of selfish, um, hateful reasons. That's not how the scriptures talk about these people. Ver Romans chapter two, verse 14. Somebody want to read. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. I want to read 15, too. I meant to write that Since there. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences are bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So what does Roman Paul there assert about Gentiles? That is... People who aren't Jews, who don't have the law. And it's fair to say Paul is not talking specifically about Christian Gentiles here. What does he say about these people who basically are non-believers in Christ? And who don't even have the Old Testament law as an item of their education. They've got some of that written in their heart. Right. Um, they have some dim awareness of what the law actually requires because God has, in fact, written it on their hearts. Um, this is what we sometimes call the natural law. God hardwired the law into creation and into our own hearts and minds. We often call it our consciences. So that, again, interestingly enough, Almost every culture in history, separated by huge distances of time, space, and never had any contact with them, all still seem to have some kind of form of marriage. 
what the heck? They all still seem to have a pretty strong awareness that uh, parents have a unique relationship with their children and vice versa. By and large, almost every culture across history has had some dim awareness that you can't just take everything you want from everyone else without consequence, unless there's some kind of reason you're able to give. Now, the reasons might differ very greatly between cultures about what counts as a reasonable, justifiable time to do it, but the fact is there's some underlying sentiments that you can't just do whatever you want with other people's stuff, that there are other people's stuff. Even in among cannibal cultures, which obviously have a much lower respect for human life than, say, a lot of other cultures, there are still strong taboos and guidelines about when you can and can't do that and who is worthy of having those kinds of things happen to them. That is to say, it's not as though you can murder anyone whenever you want because human life has no value. They may assign value to different lives differently, but there's still this awareness, dim, different though it may be, but at its base level, it seems like they still follow the law and still feel shame, guilt, worry, and anxiety when they violate those things. The point being, as scripture says, God writes the law in our hearts. Our sin, our corruption, has dimmed our awareness of what that law says, certainly, and it certainly has utterly hamstrung our ability to follow what we know, what is written in our hearts unswervingly. But it's still dimly perceived by our consciences and acted upon. So that even the non-believer might recognize, I have some obligation to this woman I married. Um, these get codified in social mores and laws, but nonetheless... I feel guilty if I just completely treat her horribly. <laughs> and I might even recognize that I have an obligation to her, even though I don't buy any of this Christian stuff, even though I've never even heard of any of this Christian stuff. Um, so the law itself kind of motivates a certain dim and certainly highly imperfect and certainly never sinless um, attempt to outwardly keep the law, but even goes even further than that, than just the idea that we're dimly aware that there's some kind of law and morality that guides us. Because that, of course, doesn't amount to uh, necessarily loving things. It just a, amounts to an awareness that there are things I should do and shouldn't do. And I'll feel bad when I don't do what I should do. And I might even unjustly just think I'm doing a good job when I'm not. It doesn't help actually say we're being loving and kind. It's just to say even unbelievers um, have the law written on their hearts and are in some sense driven forward by it. But Romans 1.25, which is an interesting place you might think to go when you read what we're saying, actually does say something quite interesting. Um, actually, let's read, let's read a little further. Let's read verse chapter 1 just to give us context of what we're talking about, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can we know about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they know God, they do not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All right. So this is kind of a, a famous verse in debates about homosexuality, or a famous set of verses, especially what follows, but we're not reading. Um, I'm not going to go into that right now. I just want to draw out a few points. First, again, notice it's not as though non-believers are just completely ignorant of the existence of a God or have a reason to excuse themselves from knowledge of God. That is to say, it's, Romans asserts, it's not a valid argument to say, well, how could they have ever served God if they never knew about God? They had no way of knowing about God, therefore it's unfair of God to hold them to account like they should have known him and loved him. What Romans assert is, anyone who open-mindedly, fair-mindedly looks at the creation can see a certain natural revelation of God, which shows his eternal attributes of his power and his justice. And the fact that people don't see that is not because it's lacking or it's unclear, but because they've simply willfully darkened their own understanding. They're willfully ignoring what you might say is the evidence of God actually being there, being over them, and being worthy of praise. So again, there's this natural revelation of God by which they should have at least a certain knowledge of God and of his law, and therefore they have no excuse for not honoring God. Because they should be able, they sh they, God has revealed himself in the world, in the works that he's done, in creation, enough so that they should at least recognize God and pay him homage. The fact that they don't shows that uh, they're, they've darkened their hearts willfully and uh, are without excuse. But then it moves into this very interesting statement in verse 25 especially, um, 24, it says, therefore, because they willfully ignored God, God simply let them follow, gave them over to the desires of their heart. That is, he let them go the way they were earnestly pushing so that they just fell into more and more and more depravity. But verse 25, and here's this uh, interesting statement. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Okay, so they turned away from God. But what did they then start doing? They started worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. Obviously, idolatry is what we're talking about here. Obviously, a sinful thing, right? This is a big problem. This is the problem, in fact, among people. But notice it doesn't say they turn around and became extremely selfish and self-interested and incapable of loving, serving, honoring, or worshiping anyone or anything except themselves. In fact, it actually asserts they started paying the fear, love, and trust they owed to God to other things, which implies what are people capable of, unbelievers? 
They are capable of real fear. I think we all know that. They are capable of real love in the sense of actually devoting themselves, even self-sacrificially devoting themselves to other things, other people, and of trust. The problem is that it's not directed here. It's directed to all kinds of other things. Um, my point in saying this is that non-Christians, therefore, if this is how the uh, scriptures talk, and this isn't the only place it talks, but we're here it certainly says they're capable of loving, worshiping, serving, submitting themselves to idols. Therefore, they are capable of showing something like love. In fact, true love, that is true devotion, I should say, to other people, like their husbands, their children, their wives, their communities, their nations, and so on and so forth. The problem is it's a fundamentally disordered love. It is directed to the wrong things and therefore directed away from the thing that allows real, full, good love to happen between people. So it would be a mis my point in all this is to say there are Christians who, who make it sound like, and sometimes when we're talking about these topics, like all non-Christians clearly are always doing selfish, evil things all the time. And we, we kind of argue against our own experience of these people who are doing really good, loving things all the time. They are doing good, loving things, a lot of them. Because they're loving the wrong things to the wrong degree. There are non-believers who are probably very devoted spouses. Almost certainly. Probably put a lot of Christians to shame. And it's not because they're just going through the motions for self-interest. They might truly be devoted to their wife. The husbands. The wives might truly be devoted to their husbands. But the devotion is so strong that that actually becomes the problem. The love is so intense that it actually is what makes the love bad. Um, what do I mean by that? On the one hand, I mean two things. Let's, let's just take this uh, the instance of husband and wife down here. This husband, non-believer, really loves his wife. When he says, I love you more than anything, he really means it. And he acts like it. From the depths of his heart, he is devoted to her. He will die for her in an instant, sacrifice everything for her good. Not in the sense that he'll just give her whatever she wants, but what he honestly believes is a good thing for her. Seems like a really loving guy. Is a really loving guy. The problem is, um, on the one hand, is a wife capable or... <laughs> Is a wife an appropriate object for absolute devotion? She's not God. She is not God. And that is actually a huge problem. Because, on the one hand, you are making her fill the shoes that only God should have in your life. Your devotion <laughs> should first be directed at God. And because it's devoted to God, therefore also be devoted to your wife. Well, what's the problem if you cut out the middleman, so to speak, and just love your wife directly, right? Well, several things. On the one hand, even if you're absolutely aiming at the good of this other person, if you do not believe in God, do you believe that God is a, is a particularly good thing for your wife to hold to? No. You might think that, okay, my, my wife's a Christian, she goes to church every Sunday, whatever. Um, I love her so much, I'm happy to let her do that if it makes her feel better. But am I going to encourage her in her walk with God? Am I going to call her out when she's being less than uh, faithful in her walk with God? Probably not. 
I'm certainly not going to be speaking the gospel to her very often when she's feeling sinful and unclean. Point being, I'll be so devoted to her, I won't be helping her come to the one who actually can save her. And so am I really doing her all that much good, even if I devote myself to giving her everything that's good for a long, healthy, full life here and now, but doing absolutely nothing to help direct her to her eternal destiny? No, I'm not actually helping her seek her good. I might think I am, but I'm not. Any more than if I were dealing with an alcoholic and I knew it would help him feel so much better to have the beer that I directed him to the beer rather than to the health, which is outside of what he wants. Similarly speaking, if I'm, directing my, if I'm not directing my wife towards her health, which is a healthy relationship with God more than anything else, I'm not really aiming for her highest good. I'm aiming for something else. And that already is a destructive <clears throat> attitude towards the other person. See how sneaky the devil is? Very sneaky. And again, on the other hand, so aside from what it does, it, it's disordered love in the way that it actually turns out to be unloving towards the thing that we love so much, even though it motivates us to do amazingly beautiful works for each other. Things that I, we will emphasize are actually materially beneficial and things that God materially wants to have happen. God wants husbands to materially care for the health, the well-being, the physical life of their wives. And this guy is absolutely doing that, right? He's doing a good part of it, but he's not doing the most important and the only thing that really matters. But on the other hand... Um, this disordered love leads him away from God, back to her. And, uh, well, let me put it this way. Again, I like to use human relationships as a stand-in because they illustrate the point really well. What is a human being's most fundamental relationship? You know the answer to this. Who is it with? God. He's your creator. He should be literally the love of your life. Now, suppose there's this woman that I have absolutely devoted myself to, 100%. I will do anything and everything for her. She is the love of my life. The only problem is she's not Tasha, <laughs> who happens to be my wife. <laughs> am I being a good, loving person? Because I am fundamentally betraying the person who I am obligated to love most of all, who I owe the debt of love to most in terms of human relationships. Nobody would think I was being a good husband if I were devoting myself however firmly, however absolutely, to this other woman. She has become my idol in my marriage relationship rather than my wife, whom I love should be directed at. Everybody would say, he's a poor husband. <laughs> he's an awful husband. Similarly, in our, the unbeliever's relationship with God, it's not that their unbeliever is incapable of doing truly loving works, but they're all they're loving towards things in a way that deprives them of their proper relationship with God and so renders them to be the type of people who deny, despise, and ignore the single most important and defining relationship in the world, the one with God, which makes them, even though they're very loving people, very self-giving people, fundamentally evil people. So, in that sense, though, the fact that they're doing genuinely 
or I should say, what look to us very good things, motivated even out of um, altruistic motives, that is to say, not self-interest, we can say non-Christians are doing good works. Not good in God's sight, but good in terms of upholding the world and showing care and compassion to each other. Ultimately, they're still evil in God's sight, and ultimately, they are even a certain amount, bring about a certain amount of destruction because they ultimately aim, will result in turning other people away from God or trying to turn them away from God or ignoring helping people come to God and so further the great evil that trickles down to cause every other evil in the world. But we don't have to simply say they're being horrible, selfish people all the time. We can acknowledge, you know what? You are an amazing husband. I'm just going to say that outright. You treat your wife better than anybody I've ever met. But that doesn't mean you're a good person. In a very real sense, it doesn't even mean you're a good husband. <laughs> um, that's a very important point to get around. Uh, any questions about any of that? It kind of goes back to what we read a while ago in Romans 3. I mean, if, if your righteousness or your works aren't leading you to faith and, and eternal life, then they're not. Right, exactly. Um, if your works are leading you away from <laughs> eternal life, this is a good way of putting it, uh, what are you a slave of, really? Are you actually a slave of God, or are you being a slave of sin? Turns out, since the result is not eternal life, it's almost certainly the opposite of good that you are pursuing. Now, that's not to say, therefore, you uh, discourage people from doing, being kind to their wives if they're unbelievers. You, because you know that God commands these beneficial behaviors, you certainly encourage them to continue those beneficial behaviors and, pun and uh, discourage behaviors that are overtly destructive physically, mentally, emotionally, right? But it also means you want to discourage the behaviors that are spiritually destructive, even while you recognize that they are physically, mentally, and emotionally constructive. Make sense? <clears throat> Oh, by the way, this will be something we'll leave off here and pick this one up because it's very important too. Uh, item C here. If, if you could expect, and we've just laid out, this is a key thing that we often ignore when we say things like, everyone's a sinner. What we often mean when we say that is, therefore, how could you expect me to do anything but bad things? <laughs> hey, yes, I cheated on my wife, but everybody's a sinner, right? But what did we just assert? You can expect even unbelieving husbands to, to act toward their wife. If you can expect civility, decent behavior, and even a certain amount of love from an unbeliever, if you can expect good behavior and decency from them, how much more should you be able to expect it from a Christian? From yourself. <laughs> we'll come back to that next time. But uh, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.